Can the U.S. protect intellectual property rights through multilateral trade agreements, even if the result is less than perfect? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The Trump administration yanked the United States out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership before that historical agreement was even officially born. And with it went the potential for some key protections of American intellectual property rights. Now, at a time when it's more important than ever for the country to guard its expertise and leadership in tech, the question is, how does it accomplish that? One possibility is to come back to the TPP, now officially in effect as the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, that's CPTPP for you acronym fans, we might not get exactly what we're looking for, but as they say, the perfect is often the enemy of the good. On this episode, we weigh the prospects of a U.S. return to TPP and how it might impact the critical issue of IP protection with the help of Joanna Shelton, a senior associate with the economics program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Here's our conversation. Joanna Shelton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I really look forward to our discussion. Thanks for being with me today. So what kind of intellectual property protection was in the original Trans-Pacific Partnership than when the U.S. was a part of that agreement or, or trying to become a part of that agreement? The intellectual property chapter of the TPP is very wide-ranging, and it's similar to what exists in the WTO trade-related intellectual property agreement there, but it expands upon it. So it covers everything from coverage of patents and how patent applications should be handled, ideally. It covers copyrights and trademarks, covers internet domain names, and a whole host of some of the new technologies that have come along in recent years that were not covered under previous agreements. So it basically looks at intellectual property. And by intellectual property, of course, we mean anything that is created out of the mind, like a book, a movie, software Mm -hmm. code, pharmaceutical products, etc. So the TPP offers wide protection for all of those intellectual property rights. I see. Uh, Just to get a historical background here, I know you mentioned that it was like what was in the World Trade Organization rules as well, but historically, my understanding is that IP has not been addressed in standard multilateral or bilateral trade agreements. Is that the case? Well, the TRIPS agreement actually goes back some years. I'd have to think to exactly when that was put into the WTO, but you're right. In the post-war era, for many, many years, trade agreements tended to cover mostly goods, agricultural products. Then they broadened to include services because, of course, services trade like telecommunications, accounting, etc. became a much more important part of world commerce. And then in more recent decades, uh, the intellectual property was then added. And you've had also the World Intellectual Property Organization, which has set some standards as well. So it's been out there, but it really has been deepened and intensified the coverage in more recent trade agreements. So the Trump administration pulls the U.S. out of the TPP. The TPP evolves into the CP. 
TPP. That's an awfully clunky acronym, yes, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. And my understanding is at that point, is it the case that those IP language was removed? What happened? No, no. Actually, most of the intellectual property rights provisions from the TPP were incorporated word for word into the CPTPP. And by the way, I'll just say this, that stands for the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Thank you for and clarifying that. Is, that. <laughs> and, and that includes, yeah, I know, that includes the 11 countries that were our negotiating partners in the original TPP, and Japan mm-hmm. stepped forward to try to keep them all together and to keep this agreement together, actually in hopes that someday the United States might want to rejoin. But the IPR provisions from the TPP, as I say, most of them were incorporated word for word into the CPTPP, and that goes beyond most previous trade agreements as it relates to IPR protection and gives a high level of protection. So it already is a high standards agreement, but there were certain provisions dropped out that had been problematic during the negotiations. The United States pushing some provisions that even like-minded countries like New Zealand and Australia and other countries really didn't want to see. And so there were about a dozen or so provisions, very technical type provisions, that were dropped out of the CPTPP. My understanding is that to some degree they related to what? Pharmaceuticals and copyrights? Can you yeah, tell me a little bit about what those were all about? Yes. Basically, the suspended provisions relate almost exclusively to pharmaceutical products, certain pharmaceutical products, and to certain copyright aspects. Pharmaceuticals, for example, they dropped out the protection of what's called biologics, and that is actually products that are made from living organisms like certain vaccines. So that's been dropped out. They dropped out the patentability of inventions derived from plants. They dropped out extended terms of protection in case of delays in granting a a patent or granting marketing approval and things like that for drugs. For copyrights, they dropped out things like the responsibilities put upon Internet service providers to prevent online infringement. That's a little bit like the argument going on today about what responsibility do social media companies like Facebook or Google have to prevent abuses on their platforms. They dropped out protection of encrypted satellite and cable signals, things like that. So they say they got into some pretty technical areas, but there were just concerns about them and also how long certain copyrights should be extended beyond the life of the author or after the first performance. Did they drop out the biologics language in response to the pandemic, or did that happen prior to the pandemic and the COVID-19 vaccines? That happened prior to that, And I will just add, I'm no expert in vaccine manufacture, but I think that the COVID vaccine, because of the way it's made, it may not actually technically be a biologic, but it may well be. But they dropped that out before this pandemic came along. Yeah, I'm not sure either, but I thought that the mRNA, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines might fall under that category. It may well. It may well. We'll have to ask ask our experts on that. Yeah. Okay. But that being the case is interesting timing because it certainly became a huge issue with the arrival of pandemic as to whether or not you could patent uh, these vaccines or should patent these vaccines and have them protected in the U.S., right? So how, how interesting that they took that action. Yes. And of course, in the United States, they remain patented, they remain protected. But of course, as we also know, President Biden, under some domestic and international pressure, did allow for that 
patent to be opened to others, and that's allowed under WTO rules, and it's also allowed under most IP rules, where if there's a strong, compelling public need, like public health, governments can override a patent for that purpose. Now, President Biden has turned most of its attention in the early months of his administration to domestic issues, hasn't said a lot about what he wants to go forward with on the multilateral trade front. Do you think, is there chatter, is there the possibility of the U.S. coming back in and joining the CPTPP? And if so, how would that affect that IP language that was suspended? Might it be reinstated? I mean, what, what, what do you think there? Well, first of all, I do think that at some stage, the Biden administration will be considering whether to pursue membership in the CPTPP. It's the biggest agreement out there in Asia. We did pull out of the TPP, which the United States had actually played a major role in driving forward. So I think at some point they will look at that. Now, if you look at then these suspended provisions, what are the prospects of their being included? First of all, I do think USTR will pursue their inclusion because the affected industries, we're talking pharmaceuticals, we're talking copyright holders like Disney and others, they have a pretty loud voice in Washington, D.C. They have strong support on Capitol Hill, and they're important to U.S. position in the world in terms of mm-hmm. trade and, and the like. So I think that there will be, a, be pressure to include them. Now, the prospects for that, well, time will tell. The fact that these provisions were excluded or per- suspended to begin with shows how controversial they are with our other partner countries. But on the other hand, these countries do want the United States to rejoin or to join the CPTPP. So my guess is there will be some room for compromise to be found, and I would hope that there would be compromise possible on both sides. If the United States has to compromise and give a little in this area as well, in the interest of getting us into this agreement, I hope that we won't let not getting everything keep us out of this agreement. You have to wonder how much leverage the U.S. would have, though. I mean, it took their ball. They went home. Now they come back and they say they want to play again. And the remaining members of the agreement say, "Uh, okay, (laughs) you know, maybe maybe on our terms this time. That's Uh, exactly it. And the difference between, and you've put your finger on it, the difference between this negotiation, if we enter into it, and all others that the United States has been involved in, is that the full picture has already been agreed. I mean, I'd say negotiations are a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle, if you think about it. You have to put many pieces together to complete the picture of what that final agreement will look like. And in this case, you have 11 countries that have already put that full picture together. So we come along, and as you say, we've pulled out of it once, and then we say, well, we would like to come in, but here are these provisions that you don't like, but we would like to see in there. And we will not have an awful lot of things to trade off to, to get their approval. I think it's going to put us, we'll be in a position of it being a demandeur or a supplicant rather than a leader in a negotiation. Very different position for the United States. Well, now to complicate matters, we have the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, the RCEP, which is 15 Asia-Pacific countries, including, as I understand, China, correct? Yes, yes. I'm, I'm trying to understand how that kind of intersects with the CPTPP. Many of the same <laughs> countries, obviously, but that's kind of confusing. The difference, of course, being that China was deliberately or not not in the TPP or the CPTPP. I'm saying that faster and faster and more clearly now. So where did that come in in terms of how it intersects and specifically how it relates to IP protection? 
Well, you're right. There's a lot of overlap. There are seven countries that are in both the RCEP and the CPTPP, including Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, and some others. And yes, you're right. RCEP includes China, and it has been under negotiation for many, many years. That's been an idea out there for a long time. And finally, China, I think, decided that now was the time to really start upping the ante and getting more active and trying to pull together an RCEP, which Mm -hmm. is China-centric, to, in a sense, compete with or stand a little bit in contrast to the CPTPP, I think in, in anticipation that the United States might eventually join that. Now, the United States has always viewed the RCEP versus the I love all these acronyms, TPP or the CPTPP, as being a somewhat lower standards agreement that versus the higher standards agreement that the United States and, and our partners have pushed. Now, I will say that as, as it relates to intellectual property, the RCEP includes many of the concepts that are included in the CPTPP and that also are found in the WTO's trade-related intellectual property agreement. So there's, there's actually quite a bit in there. I think one key difference between the two agreements is that the RCEP explicitly recognizes different levels of economic development and different legal systems of member countries as being relevant to how they implement their intellectual property commitments. For example, mm. <clears throat> some may require more time, they may want to take a somewhat different approach. Another difference, I'd say, is that RCEP more clearly stresses the balancing act that is required when you implement a a protection regime for intellectual property. For example, a balance between the inventors and creators, on the one hand, and then public interest, on the other hand. So they very explicitly put that pretty high up as a balancing act that needs to be accomplished, which then means it, it's not so much the producer interests that are considered necessarily always primary. And then it just in general, I'd say they take a more general approach to their drafting and how they specify what should be included. But, but as I say, it, it's actually fairly impressive how much is in there. On the other hand, what you just described certainly does serve the interests of China. It sounds like, I mean, just just as they do with the WTO, they can plead that, well, we are still a developing country. We, you need to cut us a break, as opposed to what some of the more, de- quote-unquote, developed countries are having to do. I, I don't know if, if that's the case or not. It feels well, that way, though, in a way. I, I, but I think let's not forget that this also includes countries like Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, yeah. et cetera, countries which really are developing countries and which really do have perhaps less capability to enact the same high standards and enforce the same high standards that, say, the right. United States or Canada or other countries do. But yeah, China is, is another matter, and we can talk about that and probably should talk about that some, too. I'm wondering, though, in the case of China, does the issue of forced technology transfer, requiring that as a condition of a joint venture in China, say, imposed by Chinese authorities and Chinese companies, is that an IP issue? It certainly is. Absolutely. And it also, I will say, it violates their WTO commitments. I mean, oh, okay. so that's already sign, on paper. Yeah. It's already on paper. And that's one of the real challenges here. And of course, they will say, well, we don't force anybody to do anything. They do it willingly to become a joint venture. But of course, that's not quite the case. They really do basically say, if you want to access our market, you must enter into a joint venture. You must provide your technology. You, if you want to sell your drugs or your high-tech 
really helpful if you put a research and development center in China so that we can also work there. I will say on China, I think this is a challenge that I don't see quite how we grapple with. I went to China in 1995 as part of a U.S. delegation. I was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Trade Policy at the time, and this is under Mickey Cantor, who was USTR and the Clinton administration. In 1995, we signed the first agreement with China for them to protect intellectual property. And then it was mostly movies and CDs that we were concerned about. Mm -hmm. Now, that was the first. There have been multiple IPR agreements with China since then, but China's enforcement is very weak. And there are a number of reasons for that. One, I think, a question of their willingness to do so. But in fairness to authorities, it's very difficult to control the actions of companies and individuals throughout the entire country. But also, I would say that the incentive structure that exists as it is today really pushes companies and researchers to get U.S. and other countries' intellectual property in any way they can through cyber theft, reverse engineering, forced technology transfer, etc. Some of the incentives include things like the Made in China 2025 program and their effort to create more domestic capability in high-tech and biopharmaceuticals and a whole host of other leading-edge industries and what better way to get ahead than to steal somebody else's technology. So it's yeah. hard to solve this problem, and I don't know what the answers are going to be. Well, going forward then, it sounds like, I mean, the Biden administration from the get-go announced itself to be uh, dedicated to a more multilateral and cooperative approach to working with its allies on a number of fronts. So to what extent might the United States now use the opportunity to enact change from within when it comes to IP as opposed to try to go it alone in an America first kind of thing? Are we looking at that going forward and are we looking at any chance of success? You mean uh, uh, working IP, the- Yeah, in working within these various agreements and uh-huh. nevertheless still achieving some degree of IP yeah. protection that's important to the United States' interests. Yes, absolutely. I think certainly you're right. The Biden administration has signaled very clearly and already has shown that they are trying to take a more multilateral approach. That's one of the reasons I think they eventually will get around to looking into the trade area and getting into some of these trade agreements. And it's it's absolutely true that it's much more effective to try to influence evolving global rules, whether it's on IP or anything else, from within and within the agreement rather than to try and shape them from the outside. And I will just say, when you look at the big picture, it is very important for economic and geopolitical reasons for the United States to become a member of a major trade agreement in the Asia-Pacific region, which is the most dynamic region in the world, and also to recognize that we are in a competition with China and other authoritarian regimes on what kinds of standards and principles will prevail in the world. So if we hope to influence that and we hope to compete effectively with China in the global realm, we need to become part of these agreements and work within. And the hope is, you think that that it's going to happen, I hope, I would think. I hope so. I will say, though, politics, I think about this. I think of the the controversy that surrounds trade, Biden's appropriate focus on the domestic scene first, trying to get our own 
house in order and focus on getting benefits in this economy to flow more to workers and strengthen the middle class. That's very important to us. Whether in 2022, with an election looming, he will want to try to embark on something like the CPTPP remains an open question. And I would also add, too, that the so-called fast-track authority that he has to bring back an agreement or the trade promotion authority to bring back an agreement and have it considered under special rules in, in the Congress expires next year as well. So he'll have to pursue a renewal of that. So my guess, it may be after the, the midterm elections before he really focuses on trade negotiations in a big way. Joanna Shelton, I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your insights with me today on this critical issue of intellectual property rights protection. Thank you very much for being with me. I enjoyed it, and I thank you so much for having me on your program. That was my conversation with Joanna Shelton of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, talking about protecting American intellectual property rights. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming and downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, follow us on Twitter at SCBrain, and also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well, and see you next time.